Hey, welcome, welcome everybody to Check the Mark. I am Mark Lucero. This is an emergency podcast. It is Sunday evening. It's around 6.30 p.m. Obviously, I've wanted to record a sort of a pre-Australian Open episode, but there was an elephant in the room that was sort of hanging over everything this week, and I wanted to wait till it was finally resolved. Obviously, it's the Novak Djokovic case. He has just lost his appeal. That came out in the last 45 minutes. A federal circuit court of appeals panel of judges heard the case, and it was decided unanimously. One thing I want to emphasize is that this just really sucks for tennis, <laughs> to be honest, to lose the best player in the world from the tournament. Obviously, there were question marks, and it was ruled legally he was not entitled to be here because of everything that was obviously litigated in court. I felt the outcome of this case was very fairly predictable, especially hearing the arguments this morning. Usually when you appeal the sort of ruling, you're going to need relevant case law, relevant precedent that says that what happened was not legal. Trying to litigate the reasoning or the rationale of the minister without relevant case law associated with that just seemed to me like a losing argument and it turns out that it was cases like this vaccine cases they really ignite passions in people and it becomes sort of a culture war case it becomes almost a popularity contest you know because you're dealing with such a compelling but also polarizing person and really at the end of the day that's not what it's about people wanted various outcomes for various reasons but what it was going to come down to was the legality of the decision and the justices made it pretty clear that the move from the minister Alex Hawk was legal and they were not going to overturn it so that's kind of where that lies and it's like I said it's unfortunate it's left me and I know a lot of other people with just this feeling of blah and it's nice to see resolution because it's felt like this has overshadowed the entire tennis world for the last and to be honest, for a long time, even before coming to Australia, I was pretty tired of the story. But the fact that it came to this, the fact that it was in court, it, you know, it just, it's no good. And there are more parties than one that walk away from this looking bad. It's not just Novak looking bad. It's, you know, the tournament looks bad. The government of Australia looks bad. Like it, you know, like the left hand's not talking to the right and the federal government you know was painted into a corner probably by comments made by the prime minister they needed to do something after you know he said that the laws apply to everybody it's just a poor outcome and the fortunate thing is that the tournament starts tomorrow and there's gonna be a lot of action on the court to talk about and i'm really excited about that we've had a really fun first two weeks of the year i have a really fun interview around the corner with my guy brad stein so hang on Brad Stein will be coming up after the break. All right, I want to welcome a good buddy of mine, Coach Bradley Clifford Stein, to the show. <laughs> Brad, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's not, it's not often that hey, anyone so you, you my just got back name. from dinner. <laughs> well, you only because you threw it out there when I uh, when I gave you the call, and so I felt the <laughs> uh, I felt I had the ability to welcome you formally. I appreciate it. <laughs> So you told me you guys just got back from dinner. Uh, what's the routine before a match? And who went? Where'd you go? That sort of thing. Um, we had a little team dinner tonight with our very small little team. Tommy, 
myself and his agent is here on the trip. So just the three of us, we went to a little Italian restaurant not too far from the hotel. Um, very low-key, especially the night before a match. Tom, Tommy tends to be a little bit uh, chill on the evening before the matches. And then um, we just got back to the hotel around 9 o'clock, and, and uh, he went back to his room. He's actually going to watch some film of his opponent tomorrow, Michael Kukushkin. He likes to watch a little bit of film, and then we'll discuss what he felt he saw in the film uh, tomorrow and go over some of that. And then, um, you know, t as far as tomorrow, match day, He's, we have a car at noon. We're warming up at 1.30, and he's fourth match on court 17. So you're here coaching Tommy Paul. You're referring to him right there. You've done a really good job, you know, in my opinion. It's been cool to see his evolution as a player. Late last year, he won his first title in Stockholm. What, what was that like, seeing him put into practice kind of everything that you guys have been working on you know, over the time that you've been working together? Yeah, I mean, pretty obviously very rewarding from a coaching standpoint when you see, you know, the fruition of your effort with your player all come together. And, and uh, Tommy won his first title in Stockholm. But I, I think that he had been playing very good tennis for a while um, and, and in a lot of ways wasn't getting as much of a benefit from it. You know, he was, he was having some really tough, close losses to uh, some very good players. And... and um, I, I I had a feeling he said to uh, to uh, Mackenzie McDonald's coach Jaime Pulgar last year while we were in Russia. I think we were at the Moscow tournament or something, maybe St. Petersburg. I, I just said I felt like Tommy was on the verge of some kind of a breakthrough. I didn't know I was going to be that uh, prophetic that he would then win a title. I, you know that wasn't necessarily what I what I thought, but <clears throat> it was obviously a a very welcome situation. You know when he did win in Stockholm. So I, I have a funny, I have a question for you, and you don't think this is something that you and I have ever really talked about. But b before I started coaching, you know, one of the books I read was Brad Gilbert's Winning Ugly, and in the book he talks about you know breaking down strategy with Andre over dinner, and so that was what I did with my first coaching job until the player I was working with told me that she didn't like to do that, but I just thought that was what you're supposed to do, and she told me that it made her nervous, like thinking that much about the match, like that far yeah, ahead I'm, of time. Yeah, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm. It's what do you funny, do? Like, the, like this, this, evening, this evening in our dinner time, I mean, we talked about a lot of sweet things, but we didn't talk about the match. Like, nothing about the match. You know, a little bit of tennis. We talked a little bit of the the situations that have been occurring here in Melbourne and and stuff like that. And, and a lot of just generic, just, you know, uh, commentary on different things, talking about places we've been food restaurants his agent has a young uh, a young son and you know talked about things with him and stuff like that so um the night before a match my tendency is to kind of avoid that a little bit um not bring that up it, you know i have worked with a player here or there if, if it comes up kind of naturally in the course of conversation and just leads that way then that's fine you know i'm, I'm prepared to do that but in general um, I have always been someone that really on game day uh, starts, you know, going through tactics and strategy and planning out how you want your player to to play the match that he's, you know, getting ready for. Yeah, absolutely. What's been your take so far on the conditions here in Melbourne? 
Um, I th- it's been interesting because obviously when you practice on different courts, we, we practice today on Margaret Court, which is one of the bigger stadium courts. We practiced the other day on the 1573 court, which is a little bit of a smaller stadium court. Um, the 1573 court today, is yeah. outside, not covered at all. And Margaret Court, you know, has a retractable roof, which was open today, but it's still, it almost creates a little bit of a, an indoor feel. And uh, I think the courts in general are playing pretty quick, but on 1573, I also felt like Tommy mentioned this also, that he felt that the, the ball was really coming up a lot. So there was, the courts were pretty, pretty lively. So high ball, in that court. going through the court quickly, but um, Margaret Court today... Still playing fast, but not quite as lively like that, I didn't feel. Interesting. Have you hit in John Kane or any of the courts on the other side of the grounds? No, we haven't We haven't been on that side of the facility at all, actually. Um, we got here a little bit late. Tommy was in the quarterfinals in Adelaide last week. So we um, he lost on Thursday. Adelaide's a, a Saturday final. So we he lost on Thursday. We actually caught a flight Thursday night. And um, Friday we took off, complete day, uh, no tennis at all. So I actually didn't see Tommy all of Friday. Give him a little bit of zone. Um, I went and walked around the city and did a few things. And I know he did go out to the courts. He went and got his credential and he dropped off some laundry and some other stuff like that. Just a little bit of housekeeping that you have to take care of when you're on the road. Um, And then so we just practiced um, yesterday, Saturday, and today. Yesterday we hit twice. And um, and then today we just hit one time, you know, on the Margaret Court. You mentioned the off day. What do you like to do here in Melbourne? Obviously, you have a lot of good memories here. You've had a lot of success here when you, you were coaching Jim Courier. Two titles, right? Yep, two titles back to back, 92, 93. Back so what do you like to do here in Melbourne? I mean, I, I, love, I love Melbourne as a city. It's a beautiful city. And yesterday was like a... Not yesterday, but Friday, which was our day off, was a nice, cool day. It wasn't overwhelmingly hot, which it can be here sometimes. Um, so, you know, I, I got up kind of late. I went to the gym. I'm a little bit of a, I've been a little bit of a gym rat this last, like, six months, eight months. So I went and got a workout in the gym. And, and then uh, I met a friend in the city in what's called the CBD, the Central Business District, and had lunch in a really cool little place on a on – a, little tiny street called Guilford Lane. There's a very, very cool little street. Melbourne is full of little alleys and cool little streets like that, lanes that that, uh, have little restaurants and cafes and places to go. I feel like there's a really big uh, coffee culture here in Melbourne. And then I just walked around a little bit, did a little bit of window shopping. I went in a place and actually tried on a watch that was way too expensive for me to buy. And... um, (laughs) <laughs> and then I just came back to the hotel and, and hung out like later in the afternoon and, and uh, I watched a little bit of Netflix and, and chill. So Jim's Australian Open run, the first one, I believe, was very well known for what happened after. You guys, was it the first one? You guys went and jumped in the Yarra yeah, well, River? We actually did it at both of them, but the, the first one was obviously the first time we did it. So. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's <laughs> was been quite. Like? It's been quite documented now. I, uh, you know, thanks to the fact that Jim has stayed very involved in the game. You know, both from the standpoint of having been captain of the Davis Cup team, and he runs and uh, uh, the Seniors Tour in the U.S. and then he does his commentating. 
you know, he's really stayed involved in the game. And, and down here in Australia, he's very popular, obviously, as a two-time champion. And after we, after Jim won that, uh, that first title, we had, I think it was after the quarterfinals, we used to historically after a match, we would go and take a short run for about 15, 20 minutes just to cool down. And um, we would run along the river. There's a trail right along the river. And one of the days, I think it was after the quarterfinals, we were running along the river. And the river's pretty polluted. It's pretty nasty. And um, <laughs> we were running under one of the bridges, and there was just a bunch of stuff that accumulated against the wall. And there were, like, cans and just – it looked disgusting. And I and I so said, Jimbo, you know, I mean, like, you're through the quarters. It's looking like – I mean, you got a good chance to win the title now. And I said, you know what? You win this title, I'll jump in the river. And he looked at me and he goes, dude, if you're going to jump in the river, I'll jump in the river with you. And then we both kind of were like, all right, we're serious. We're jumping in the river if you win the title. So it just kind of became a thing. And no one knew. Literally, the first year, literally no one knew that, that we had planned this. And so, <laughs> you know, he wins the title, comes back to the locker room. We're jumping up and down, you know, celebrating a little bit and stuff. And we look at each other and we go, we doing it? And uh, we both said, yeah, let's go do it. So we just took up our shirts and we jogged out through the car park. The facility was a little bit different back in those days. And um, we just ran straight across the street, no hesitation whatsoever, and just dove into the, into the river, which we then found out later was the 16th <laughs> most polluted river in the world. Did anybody try no, to stop it? No, no one stopped us. And you know what was, what was crazy was there just happened to be, by pure luck, there was one photographer that was just walking back to his hotel after the match that saw us coming, obviously quickly grabbed one of his cameras and just started snapping pictures. And he got us diving into the, into the river and coming back out. And he had like a massive exclusive because that picture was on the front page of every newspaper in Australia the next day. Oh man. If that happened now, that'd be, that would have yeah, gone exactly. viral. Someone would have got it on now, Instagram. Like, um, so that was pretty cool. And then the second year, you know, obviously everyone was asking the questions, you know, like, are you going to jump in the river again if you win, blah, 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 all this other stuff. So the second year, there were quite a few people out there waiting for us to do it and everything. But, um, yeah, it was – we kept our shoes and socks on both years because the river is nasty. Um, you know, the, the Yara is called the upside-down river because it looks like the bottom is on the top because you, you basically can see about a half an inch deep in the water. It's so brown. Oh, I don't so recommend gross. it. I, Did, I don't uh... recommend swimming or diving in the yard. We we definitely puckered and squeezed and closed every orifice in our entire body as we were jumping in. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so the the story along those lines, along with what you mentioned, the story that was told to me when I was a kid was that Jim ran after the matches in the Australian heat as kind of a like a message to the locker room. Is that not true? Um, I mean, truth be said, Mark, it's not really true. You know, it's like you see everybody nowadays after their matches, you know, they get on a bike in the gym or they get on the treadmill. We used to go and literally do a run and we used to run for max like 20 minutes. It was like we usually would run for about 15, 20 minutes. It was more of a jog than a run. It was purely to cool down. And but it 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 took on a kind of a life of its own of, because there were a couple times here in Australia when he and I first started working together where there were extremely hot days and we were seen by other players coming back through the car park into the facility running 
um, you know, after Jim had played a three out of five set match, which no one else did. And so guys were literally like, you know, what the heck career is going for a run? Like after a three out of five set match, um, when in reality, all we were doing was a little cool down. But, but the fact was, you know, both of us are pretty competitive people. And sometimes towards the end of the run, we would kind of be pushing the pace a little bit. You know, I'd start running a little faster and then he'd start running a little faster. And then I start running a little faster. And, you know, the last quarter mile or something, we, you know, we might be doing a pretty decent clip coming into the car park. And, and, uh, especially one year, Jim beat this guy named Jaime on scenes, South American player. And, he beat him badly, very, very badly. I can't remember the exact score, but I know he was up five love in the third set and kind of donated a game. I think it was like two, two, two and one or something like that. And that day when we came back into the car park, we were running pretty hard. And Jaime was on his way out in the car park and he just stared at us like, are you, are oh you kidding God. me? Like this guy just kicked my butt and now he's like out taking like a training run. And that's what happened was that everybody thought that they were actually like training runs. You know, it started to become a, a rumor in the in the locker room and around the media and everybody that, you know, Courier was going and doing a training run, that he was like so insanely fit that he was actually running after three out of five set matches. And so we didn't do anything to dissuade that idea, you know, and just let it kind of take on a life of its own. That's incredible, man. That, that's You know, I know you're busy. I know you got a match tomorrow. You know, this is the night before the tournament begins. One more thing, just I, I want to get to about you that people probably don't know is that you're fluent in French, and you you really you have a, an unbelievable way about you. You know, with the French language and obviously you know, assimilating like when we're in that part of the world too. Where's your favorite place to go? Is it Paris? Is it being there where you can use your language skills? Is it being here in Australia where you've had so much success? Just from your point of view as far as what you like to do on a day-to-day basis where's your favorite part of the world to be and on we, the road i mean we we are so lucky as you know you know we're so lucky to be able to travel and go to so many amazing places um it's hard to single out one but that being said i always 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 say because i do speak french that i have an affinity for being in france you know and and so obviously Paris is a very, very special place. I love walking around Paris and I have a decent knowledge of like the areas in Paris. And, and, uh, and again, there's, you know, you can go on a long walk in Paris on a day off and just stop in any cafe on any little street and just relax and, and chill and listen to the sounds of people around you and, and everything. And, and for me, I really love that. I also love doing that in Rome. I love doing that in London. I love doing that, you know, this year, or actually last year now, 2021. I mean, I went to Russia for the first time. I went to Moscow and St. Petersburg, and I found St. Petersburg especially to just be a spectacular city, you know. But if I had to pick one place, I would pick France and probably Paris. I just want to follow up because that's so good. Do you try to impart some of that on the the players that you work with, especially when you're with when you're with younger players? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny. It's funny. Um, you know people that are watching your you know or listening to your podcast maybe don't know this but you know you and i both have the pleasure and honor of being able to do some commentating down here in australia and and uh, one of the guys we work for james watson was was working last week with jim courier or the week before for atp cup and he, he just told me the other day he said jim said that the the best one of i you know i want to say one of the best things not the best things but one of the best things that i 
that I taught him when we were working together was that we had a day we had a day off in Rome where Jim had lost, and um, you know Roland Garros was coming up uh, a week or so after that. But I told him, I said, Jimbo, tomorrow we're taking the day off. We're not hitting any tennis balls. And that was pretty hard for Jim. Jim wasn't the kind of guy that took a lot of days off. And I said, we're going to see Rome. We're going to go walk around Rome. Because Jim had been to Rome like three times, but he had literally never gone anywhere but the hotel and the tennis courts. And I said, look, we're in one of the great cities of the entire world. We're going to go spend some time and see Rome. We're going to be tourists today. And so we went to all the you know, great attractions in Rome. We went to the Trevi Fountain and we went to, uh, you know, to the Roman ruins and we went to the Vatican and uh, and we stopped in a little trattoria and we just had lunch. And it was a phenomenal day. And, and then a week later, we arrived in Paris and we're in a taxi cab and I start speaking French to the, ta- to the cab driver. And Jim looked over at me and was literally like dumbfounded. And he goes, what the hell? You speak French? Like, and so it was it was just funny, you know, that that um, and all those things I kind of, you know, I think led to the fact that it opened Jim's eyes to, to the, to the fact that there was more to life than just tennis, you know, there were other things to do. And he started to become uh, a museum goer, you know, and a much bigger, Jim became a very voracious reader. Actually, we read books like crazy, read magazines like crazy, you know, and um, you know, Jim, Jim was a guy who turned pro out of high school, like Tommy Paul, like a lot of these guys. And, and, um, they don't have a lot of formal education, but we all get this amazing education of being on the road and traveling to these incredible places. And we all need to take time to to explore them and learn about them and, and uh, absorb a little bit of the culture that we get to experience. That's incredible because the gym that I know is this incredibly worldly guy and all these diverse interests and stuff. And that, that's maybe the one of the highest compliments, I think, that, that a coach you know, someone like me, a younger coach, I like, could hope for, you know, is to have someone say something like that about me that, that he said about you. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it was very cool. When when uh, James Watson told me that, we call him Watto, you know, he uh, I, I was I got a big smile on my face, you know, made, made me kind of laugh thinking back to that because because it was like Jim was a little resistant, actually, which is funny. You know, he's like, what do you mean we're not practicing? <laughs> right. Oh, man. Brad, good luck tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, dude, anytime you're welcome on Check the Mark. This is, like, about 10 minutes longer than I wanted to go, but it is just so good. And I know that, you know, when you and I get rolling, like, we can yeah. talk for a while. So Yeah, thank you, you know so me much, well man. enough to know, Mark, that you I can't talk for only 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. All right. Take, take it, it easy. easy. Thanks so much. That is it for today. Big shout-out to Brad Stein for jumping on the mic with me. Love talking tennis with Brad. Hey, if you want to hear more from him, follow him on the social media channels. Also, tune in to ESPN3 or ESPN+. Plus. That's where you can catch our world feed. Brad's going to be on it. I'm going to be on it calling matches as well. Subscribe, rate, and review on Check the Mark, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Otherwise, hit me up at Mark Lucero on Twitter or The Gram. That's it. I'm out. Peace.